you consider that you grow up in a strict family? So with the Haitian community and like raising children, it's a lot much more restricted and stuff like that. I have more of a sense of urgency as an adult. Like I can make decisions easily because I was allowed to make my own decisions from when I was young. I'm Nigerian. I was raised in a Christian home back then. It's very strict, but I think that was for good because you know what? I, I became very disciplined. So I grew up in Philadelphia, mixed black family, um, but I'm African. I kind of grew up with my culture. I didn't get to explore what I could do with my life as a child. I said, I'm not doing this no more. It's Notes from America. I'm Kai Wright. Welcome to the show. I'm talking this week with Sophia Sinclair. She's an award-winning poet and essayist who teaches creative writing at Arizona State University and who grew up in Jamaica in a household governed by Rastafari teachings under the strict rule of her father. Rastafari is much more and much different than how it shows up in pop culture as, you know, reggae music or as a style choice or just as an appropriated vibe in bad movies. It's actually an anti-colonial, pro-Black way of living. But for Sophia, it was also a complicated, often painful childhood. She revisits that time and tries to learn from it in her new memoir, How to Say Babylon, and she joins me to talk about the book, about her journey, and about the history of Rasta. Sophia, welcome to the show. Hi, Kai. Thanks for having me. So place is a really big part of your writing. Um, yes. So let's start there. Where is home for you? You know, whenever I get asked this question, I always say home for me is Jamaica. Home mm. for me is Montego Bay. We call it the second city in Jamaica. Um, it's the second largest city. It's a coastal town. You know, most people kind of know it as this sort of tourist destination. But for me, you know, it was where I was born, where my mm -hmm. family was born. Um, and I was born in this small sea village close to the airport in Montego Bay called White House. Mm -hmm. That's where my mother is from and her family, um, a family of fishermen are from. Uh, my grandfather actually had a hand in the name of the town because when he arrived there almost a century ago, and my great-grandfather, he um, painted his house on the beach white. And from there came the name of the town, White House. <laughs> wow. Yeah. <laughs> when do you, do you remember when it registered for you that you were Rastafari, that that's how you were being raised? Hmm. You know, I always kind of knew my parents were different because they were the only people I saw when I was a child who had dreadlocks, who mm. talked about Haile Selassie, you know, who had different rules about what they ate and different rules about how my mother dressed. And so I knew they were different. Um, I had that concept as a child. But it was when my parents decided that they were going to... Um, 
my mom like twisted my hair into dreadlocks, me and my siblings. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was the first moment where I was like, oh, okay, I'm like part of this thing, Rastafari. And it really registered um, because after that Christmas, after my mom like twisted my hair into dreadlocks and I went back to school for the first time, I was mercilessly teased. No, it really. You were how old? I was eight. Yeah. And. There was this one student or a couple students at school who would follow me around and like taunt me and sing this song, Lice is Killing the Rasta, over and over. Um, And I was like, wow. That was kind of the first moment of realization of like, okay, I'm not only different, like I always knew my family was different, but okay, now there is this new consequence or frame to it. Um, and I started to think about my selfhood in a different way mm. for the first time. Yeah. At what point did you begin to realize that not only did being Rasta make you different from other kids, but also being a girl who is Rasta meant something particular? You know, um, I would say around nine, I started to see it because, you know, my brother and I were only two years apart and we were very close when we were growing up. And I remember there was a moment where I felt that there was a shift in the way, you know, the paths that we were both on. Um, I remember there was, so my, we used to climb trees all the time. Like I was wild, right? So I was, <laughs> I was up in the trees. I was, um, but I remember there was a day my father said, you, you can't climb trees anymore. It's unladylike. Like mm-hmm. that's done. But not my brother, right? And I was like, yeah. well, what is this? Like, yeah. this makes no sense. And then he, um, when we, when I was nine, made the decree that none of his daughters were, would ever wear pants or shorts again. And told my mother to throw them all away, which she did. And so now there were these rules of she, you can only wear dresses and long dresses and long skirts and so on. That was nine, right? And then I began to see, oh, it's not just that I have dreadlocks now. It's like more, it's more. You know, I never I never had made this connection, even though I'd seen all these Rasta cistern who had their hair like wrapped up, you know, in, in that we call it a tie head in Jamaica. And they did dress this way, but I was nine. I didn't think that had anything to do with me <laughs> and until then it did. Mm. And so that's when I began to think about it, when I saw the rules kind of diverging between me and my brother. And and it happened simply because I was a girl. What was your relationship to your mother within the context of this as someone who was an enforcer of these changing rules? You know, I never, when I was growing up, thought about her as an enforcer, you know? in that way, um, because she also made my world, for me and my siblings, she made the world feel so expansive. You know, when I talk about all these rules, um, it would kind of seem like, wow, your world was getting smaller. But it was through my mother that for a long time, it just felt like the world was still ours for the taking because when we were home she she gave us the love of books and of literature and of imagination and play and a love of nature um 
which she actually made into her own kind of curriculum. Like, so I always saw her as someone who expanded my world. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it was your mother who introduced you to poetry, right? So poetry was always a natural part of my growing up. Um, And Jamaica itself, we are, culturally, we celebrate poetry and elocution um, across the island. Mm. We have even contests where that's aired on, you know, national TV where students go and recite poetry and for for medals you know and so this is also entrenched in our in our nation as yeah. culturally important and so but in my house my mother was the one who first handed me that first collection of poems um and she told me what poetry meant to her and this was in a, a moment of deep hurt i was 10 years old um and someone i thought was my friend um, said, I don't want to be your friend. I don't want to be friends with Arasta. Oh, wow. And I was so hurt. And um, my mom could feel that, that hurt. And she she handed me this collection of poems. And she said poetry had always expanded the world for her. Poetry had always made the world feel wider and warmer for her. And she said, I think you might like to read this. And so, yeah, I began reading the poems and I came across a poem and I just remember the feeling of like I could feel that hurt evaporating or this idea of that whatever I was feeling could be alchemized into something else through Mm -hmm. poetry Mm -hmm. and I wrote my first poem like that around that time at 10 years old and it just continued from there, you know, and I began writing poems about my love of Jamaica, of the landscape, of the sea. And in adolescence, then I I, I discovered um, Plath and other poets who were confessional. And I thought, oh, the gaze also can turn inward, that there is an interior landscape here that could be explored. And so I began to write poetry from you know, the self from the sort of, I think of it as the catacombs of myself. (laughs) There, too, poems can come. And um, then I published my first poem when I was 16 um, in the newspaper in Jamaica, and it kind of just went from there and never stopped. First a poet at 10. Poet at 10. And a published poet at 16. Okay, everybody, get to it. (laughs) This is is a high bar. What a wonderful act of parenting. Yes. um, To give your child a poem to try to heal. Yes. Do you recall what that collection was or who who, who was the poet? It was a collection called Poems from a Child's World. Mm. The poem that I remember that struck me the most was a poem called The Tiger by William Blake. You know, tiger, tiger, burning bright in the forest of the night. And I just remember the the image kind of just obliterating any hurt I'd, I'd been feeling this. I was like, what is this strange magic? Like, what is this sorcery happening on the page? And I went to the encyclopedia. We had one of those old ones that was like an actual book. <laughs> and I like flipped through looking at, who's this William Blake? And it said he had died 
like uh, almost 150 years ago. And I was like, what? Wow. Yeah. And I was like, wow. So this is what poetry can do. Poetry is a way to outlive myself and what I can leave behind me. And there was no looking back after that. <laughs> right. You, you encountered that kind of power. You're like, I'm doing that. That's I'm like, for me. I'm like, this is what I need to be doing. <laughs> That's great. After a break, Sophia Sinclair shares one of her poems, and we learn the history of Rasta. This is Notes from America. I'm Kai Wright. Stay with us. Dread not I, dread from the sea I was drawn, I blue as dread, tender dread, taloned as our future dread. Dread the constellation I was born under, dread I slept under, dread the waves of history blustering red. Dread my mother's calm, dread the harpy's song, dread she nursed me, dread she named me, dread my girlhood under sugarcane, dread the hurricane. I was a child of dread, a psalm of dread, dread pressed into my palm like the blessed herb, a divine dread, Rastaman said. Before I could speak, there was dread, before I could stumble. Dread roamed the shore a ghostly spume, dreadless thread of the woman I'm erasing, dread my one coastline crumbling to sea rise to abyss. Dread my dead tooth on making the veil, dread the ointment I, dread the wound I, dread the whale I, dread the John Crow's eye, smoke of black clouds heralding only dread. Skirmish of youth, my constant banner of dread. Dread at home, dread to the bone, my father dangling his guillotine of dread. Dread as daily bread, nursed dark by decades of dread, teachers recoiled at my knotted thorns of dread. How the white girls blanched with dread, scorned for the hair on my head. Beware my black heart of dread, the reckless haunt of my dread, girl born of nothing but salt air and dread, girl who bore nothing but a vision of dread, such a savage dread, thrum of the natty dread, Congo bongo dread, martyred was the dread, brother still the dread, blood of my dread. Babylon maiming families of dread, pastors railing against our dread, dread the crown of heavens I wear upon this head. Dread at the root, dread of the fruit, sister of the dread, daughter of the dread, 
First woman giving birth to her dread, a gorgon stoning every bald head dead. This is Notes from America. I'm Kai Wright, and that was poet and essayist Sophia Sinclair reading her poem, Planet Dread. Her new memoir, How to Say Babylon, revisits her childhood as a girl being raised Rastafari in Jamaica. And Sophia, the line in that poem, my father wielding the guillotine of his dread. Tell me about that. Um, You know, with the poem, I, I wanted to... Um, kind of explore all the different ways that dread defined my childhood um, and all the different ways that we can kind of explore dread. So, you know, um, I grew up in a, a pretty strict authoritarian household that it was connected to um, the Rastafari movement and, and the rules that were sort of imposed in every household, which um, kind of changed from house to house. There's no, like, overarching, there's no book, there's no mm-hmm. Bible of Rastafari. Um, and so from the sort of basic tenets of, you know, Black liberation, purity, um, of what, you know, keeping your body, your temple clean and pure for Jah, beyond that, most Rasta brethren kind of, are the like the godhead in each household and they mm-hmm. kind of sort of change and shift the rules to however they see fit. Mm-hmm. And so growing up, um, I have two sisters. So my sisters, my mother and I, we kind of had different rules about how how women were supposed to be inside of Rastafari. Um, and that manifested in how we should dress, how we should speak or, or not speak, um, you know, sort of silence and obedience were the virtues of womanhood. Um, we were supposed to cover our arms and our knees. We were not supposed to wear jewelry or makeup. Any adornments were seen as the trappings, the vain trappings of Babylon. Mm. And so, yeah, you know, there was a lot of, um, I grew up kind of bent under this silence of womanhood and and in my adolescence and so when i'm thinking about this idea of the guillotine it it, it kind of represents the the rules and how i felt they severed me from myself when i was growing up um or severed me from the self that i wanted to be that's so powerful so you know i think we actually need to back up and talk more about rastafari itself Because the sad truth is that for a lot of us, our understanding of it is very basic, like to a comic book level. For instance, even the idea that Rastafari and Jamaican are not the same thing, that like you would be seen as different as a Rasta kid in Jamaica. Can you just talk about that for a minute? You know, I think most people, I I knew when I was sat down to write the book that most people would be surprised to know that the Rastafari are not actually a majority in Jamaica. Um, but in Jamaica, the Rastafari are historically a persecuted minority. Um, the Rastas make up 
mm, 1% or less of the Jamaican population. There's probably a few hundred thousand Rastafari. Um, and when the movement began in the early 1930s in Jamaica, Jamaica was still under British colonial rule. And the Rastas were outcast. They were pushed to the fringes. They were seen as pariahs. They were constantly threatened, um, turned away from their families. In the 60s, we had a prime minister that gave the army, the Jamaican army, um, the directive to bring me all Rastas dead or alive. Mm. And this led to this really bad, um, like the worst atrocity in Jamaican history where um, they rounded up all the Rastas, they tortured them, forcibly cut their beards, cut their dreadlocks, an unknown number of them were killed. And, um, you know, it wasn't something that was even taught in schools as history. I kind of learned it through my father and through growing up Rastafari. And only recently has the Jamaican government kind of started to make amends for that, um, what they call the Coral Gardens Massacre and Bad Friday. And so this is all part of Jamaican history that Rastafari from the beginning were kind of seen as um, the black sheep. You know, we the, the police, you, you did target practice with, with pictures of, of Rasta brethren. Um, and it became so bad that even now in Jamaica, in Patois, when people say Babylon, they mean police. Mm. So it's a Babylon down the road. That means police is down the road. Oh. Yeah. Oh. You go through a lot of this history in the course of the memoir. That's one of the one of the important parts of the book is that you're putting your life in this historical context. Yeah. You said 1930 is when uh, Rastafari began. Give us that story a little bit. Um, how and where did, <laughs> did Rastafari develop? You know, it's funny because um, I only had the broadest strokes of this history before I began to write the book. And I feel like I, in the writing of it, had to become like a Rastafari scholar from scratch, oh, wow. you know, because there isn't a lot of written material mm. about this. And there's no like written book of tenets of Rastafari. Most of it is just the wisdom and the knowledge of the history passed down from brethren to brethren. It's an oral culture. Yes. Uh. Um, and it wasn't... Uh, really passed down to the women. So I had to, uh, There's that. you know, <laughs> step in and, and <laughs> pass it down to myself. Mm, mm. But, you know, it began in the early 1930s with a street preacher named Leonard Percival Howell, um, who was a fan of Marcus Garvey, the Pan-African abolitionist, who, who was also Jamaican. And Marcus Garvey had given one of his um, last speeches. He said... Look to Africa for the crowning of a black king, for he will be the redeemer. And around the same time, the Ethiopian emperor Haile Selassie had been coronated in Africa. And when Howell heard news of this, he took it as a sign because Haile Selassie was the only black ruler in the world at the time. Mm -hmm. And Ethiopia was the only African nation to never be colonized. And so the movement of Rastafari began to like harden around this man, Haile Selassie, this black ruler, who then was an inspirational, aspirational figure for black people. Um, and just remember at the time in the 1930s, 
Jamaica was still a colony of Britain. We didn't have our independence yet. And so for them, Haile Selassie represented this dream of black liberation and black independence, of building something outside of the British Empire. Um, yeah, and so the movement of Rastafari really gathered strength from there. Um, and Howell in Jamaica, you know, started going around and, and preaching about Haile Selassie as this sort of Godhead figure, this aspirational figure of black liberation. Mm-hmm. Um, and it kind of went from there. And, you know, and then immediately the British government attacked them. Howell had a commune where he had uh, about 3,000 Rastafari people living there peacefully. And the government, the British government, came and burnt it to the ground. Um, they they declared it was a cult and it was, you know, they came and just yeah. burnt it. Yeah. As they would do to a black liberation movement. Yeah. What, you hinted at this a little bit in yes. talking about your parents, but... It, this is a religious, as this is a political, a religious is, um, yes. movement. What are, what what do Rastafari believe? I, I recognize that's a that's a ridiculously that's broad, a broad question, question, but you know, you know, because a Rasta might be like, the, I don't believe in nothing. Mm. You know, like to them, words like believe, faith, religion are colonial words. Those are the words of. Babylon, right? Mm-hmm. So they don't even, they don't say Rastafar is a religion. My father would say Rastafar is a way of life. Huh. And they call it liberty, right? So when they talk about walking the path of Rastafari, they call it their liberty, right? So this, the whole philosophical and spiritual idea of being Rastafari is wrapped up in this idea of liberty. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think, you know, stemming from this anti-colonial um, root of where the movement began, you know, Rastafari, uh, most mostly is a still a Pan African. It, it has roots in this Pan African idea. A lot of Rastafari kind of yearned for repatriation um, to Africa, so they are for um, the liberation and upliftment mm. of of Black people all across the diaspora. Um, they also have you know, kind of specific rules about what they eat. You know, they don't eat meat, fish. They they completely have a vegan diet that they call ITIL. Um, they, of course, wear their hair in dreadlocks, which is for them not a style. It is an absolute must. It's a sacred marker of their reverence um, to Rastafari um, mm. and, and a marker of their purity and devotion to Jah which is what they call, you know, the Godhead figure. Mm. You, you mentioned Babylon a number of times. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, just in case, I, I don't want to assume understanding of the idea of Babylon. Explain when, when you refer to Babylon, what that means. Um, so Babylon represents all the systems that the Rastafari see as... Um, tied to the repression of an enslavement of Black people. So it's tied, when it began in the 1930s, it was tied directly to British colonial empire. It's tied to ideas of Western ideology, Western theology, Christianity, 
slavery. So they see this all as one system, all connected, that is working to repress black people. Mm-hmm. That's Babylon. Yeah. So everything that Arastaman sees as evil, as impure, as heathenistic, as hedonistic, that's Babylon. And what about all of this, do you think, was so powerful and appealing to your parents? You know, I think both of my parents um, who were born, they were both born in 1962, which was the year that Jamaica gained their independence from Britain. So they were born at a time of, you know, great uprooting in Jamaica, a kind of um, cultural revolution um, where Jamaica was at that point going to figure out what 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 kind of nation they were going to be now that they were free of the shackles of colonialism and so it was around this time in the 60s and 70s where reggae was at the height of its popularity and reggae of course is directly tied to rastafari and its ideals reggae is the musical manifestation of the prayer of rastafari mm-hmm. and Um, You know, both my parents who kind of grew up almost orphaned, you know, um, I think in their youth were searching for something, like a lot of Jamaican youth, you know, in the throes of this rebellion and and, and revolution. And Rastafari, I think, provided for them a place where they felt safe, they felt at home, they felt included in a movement that gave them a kind of power as black people that they never had before. I mean, we had a show a couple of weeks ago uh, where we were trying to define what is black freedom. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Um, uh, And... um, yeah, well, well, we we ask callers in general what is freedom to them, but but the but we were specifically talking about what is black freedom, um, and I don't have a definition of it. I don't either. Um, <laughs> it's a broad and, one, yeah. It, but, but this, it sounds to me like to your parents, this was this was a potential definition, and that that's yeah. one of the things that appeals to it. Absolutely, I think for them, it did feel like a kind of freedom that, um, and Howell's idea, you know, of having a black nation kind of live in harmony and work toward this goal of, um, you know, ultimately upliftment um, was something that also appealed to them and yearning for feeling, you know, all of us who are, who are black in the diaspora kind of feel this like strange amputation from our roots or where we, came from. And I think for my parents, feeling like there was a place where they could look to and say, that's where we came from, and that's where we belong, and that's where we want to be, had um, a really had potency for them. I'm Kai Wright. I'm talking with Sophia Sinclair about her new memoir, How to Say Babylon. After a break, her decision to leave Jamaica and the road to healing with her father.
everyone. My name is Rahima and I help produce the show. I want to remind you that if you have questions or comments, we'd love to hear from you. Here's how. First, you can email us. The address is notes at wnyc.org. Second, you can send us a voice message. Go to notesfromamerica.org and click on the green button that says start recording. Finally, you can reach us on Twitter and Instagram. The handle for both is notes with Kai. However you want to reach us, we'd love to hear from you and maybe use your message on the show. All right. Thanks. Talk to you soon. It's Notes from America. I'm Kai Wright, and I'm talking with poet and essayist Sophia Sinclair about her new memoir, How to Say Babylon. It's as much a history of Jamaica and the Rastafari movement as it is her own family story. And Sophia, at what point did you decide to leave Jamaica? I mean, you know, for me, I don't think of my leaving Jamaica. It did not happen until like 10 years ago. Um, where I had this moment where I thought, okay, I have to leave or I won't survive this. Mm. Um, because I began to rebel against the rules. <laughs> Let me say that. <laughs> In case it wasn't clear already. <laughs> At some point, you're At like, I'm point, climbing the tree. I'm climbing the tree. <laughs> like, um, and so I... I, I I questioned everything and I rebelled and this led to a lot of clashes between me and my father because, you know, a woman who voices her, her opinion is an instrument of Babylon, right? So when I was 19 years old, I decided to cut my dreadlocks. And like I'd said before, I think most people don't realize um, how important the wearing of dreadlocks is to the Rastafari. Like, to my father, this was the way that you expressed your devotion to Rastafari. You know, in the same way that, you know, someone, a nun might wear a habit or someone Mm -hmm. wears a turban, that is what the dreadlocks represent to the Rastafari. Um, And so it was never a choice for me and my sisters. Um, And when I was 19, I decided... As I began to think about who I wanted to be, what was the future ahead of me? If I continued on this path that my father wanted me to be on, who would that woman be? And I tried to follow the path all the way. And this kind of woman bent under silence and pliance and obedience was not the woman I wanted to be. Mm. And... um, yeah, I cut my cut my dreadlocks and my father was not pleased. You know, he he didn't talk to me for a, about a year. We were living in the same house. Wow. And um he looked through me like I was a ghost. I had become Babylon. And um then my middle sister cut her dreadlocks. Then my youngest sister cut her dreadlocks. And then my mother, who had been growing her dreadlocks since she was 19 years old when she first met my father, cut her dreadlocks. And I think that pushed my father to the edge. I think he saw me at that time as 
I guess maybe the bad seed or sort of the ruin of this idea of the perfect Rasta family. Mm. I mean, um, if you were Babylon and you were Babylon in his home, uh, that's what Babylon would do, right? It yeah. would destroy black yeah. freedom in this, yeah, in this um, way of thinking. And you know, and so he got violent, and um, that was when I decided I I had to leave yeah. Jamaica. Yeah, to sort of go out and you know nurture that that woman that I could become and nurture that voice and and nurture that strength so that when I did return, I would return in a way that I could speak to him eye to eye. Was there truth to the fact that you were the catalyst for the other women in your family saying, hey, I don't have to do this? I think so. Um, Yeah, I think so. You know, I think after I did it, then they sort of got over the fear of of doing it also. Um, You know, we we talked about it before and always felt that, you know, we didn't feel ourselves within these rules and strictures within Rastafari. We didn't feel like there was a space for us. Um, It wasn't something that we would have chosen um, for ourselves. And so I think, yes, after I did, then, you know, everyone felt that, okay, maybe I can do it too. How did you think in real time about that act of rebellion? I mean, it's, um, and I use that word on purpose, you know, I mean, I think so many of us in our lives, you know, have these moments where we want to have an act of rebellion against something that's put upon us. Um, and it's very scary and hard and most of us don't do it. And, um, I just wonder how, you know, just how you processed what you were doing at the time. Um, I just felt free. So, (laughs) (laughs) you know, I was like, if this is how it's going to be, then this is how it's going to be. And that's fine. Because the alternative was not, for me, one that I wanted. So I'd rather have the strife and the struggle with my father and, you know, him not seeing me, not hearing me, not acknowledging me, than feeling that I was kind of shackled or or restricted under these rules that um, I didn't feel myself Anyway, so, you know, I'd rather be myself and be cast out than to be, I guess, choked under the silence of the rules. You wrote this book. um, Yes. To process a lot of this in public. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Um, uh, Thinking back to your childhood, having written the book now— are there memories um, of your father, um, of your childhood, uh, that you're like, oh, I understand that differently now because I've done this? Um, I would say that not necessarily memories of my own childhood, but in writing the book, you know, where I had to 
not only kind of contextualize the history of Rastafari in a broad sense, but also think about how I'm tied to this history of Rastafari. And the tether is my father, right? And so in the writing, I had to explore that. And so I had to ask him, well, why? Why did you feel called by Rastafari? And so I had to like do a lot of interviews with him for the first time to hear about his connection to Rastafari. And he told me about his childhood and his adolescence and how his mother kicked him out because he was a Rast- you know, he decided to be a Rastafari at 16, 17. She left him on the street. Mm. And so he, you know, I learned a lot having those conversations with him that I didn't necessarily know before in that way, in that detail. Um, And then I began to think about his own traumas in a way that I'd never thought before. Mm. Um, So I would say, you know, that's the the biggest thing I learned in the writing, yeah. When you say in a way that you'd never thought before, what was that shift? I mean, you know, like I was talking about before, my father loomed so large in our lives. You know, he was the entire son. He was the whole world in, in the house, right? And so for a long time, I never really saw, I never humanized him in my mind because he was this this authoritarian, he was this figure that, you know, all the rules came from and all the you know, the words came down from him and we never talked father to daughter, human, person to person, you know, in a close way. It was always, this is what I'm saying you should do. This is what you should think. This is who you are. Like, we've never had... Which is to say he dehumanized himself, actually. Actually. Like, he made himself into a figurehead instead of a person. Yes. Um... And so then I had to, like, do the work of, like, reversing that Mm -hmm. and and seeing him in a way that I'd never seen him before. Um, Because I I don't think, for me and how I was thinking about writing the book, it, it wouldn't work the way I wanted it to work if I didn't have that chapter or those moments of, well, how did he come to this, you know? As his own act of rebellion against what he was supposed to be. Yeah, against yeah, against his Christian family. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. What was his reaction when he learned you were writing the book? I mean, you had to go interview him and be like, hey dad, I'm gonna <laughs> we're gonna talk about some stuff. Talk about some stuff. <laughs> um you know, I think my family by that point was used to me writing about them. Mm. They're like, Okay, this is what this is just what she does. <laughs> she you know, because I I written poems about them in my poetry collection. So they were kind of used to that. And I'd been writing and publishing poems since I was 16. And so I don't think he necessarily understood all the facets of what was going, what was writing a memoir was going to mean until I think a little bit later. But I think he was very happy to actually have me call him and ask him about Rastafari Mm. and ask him about his adolescence and his childhood. You know, I think he was happy to be able to to speak 
about it for the first time to somebody. It's so funny that, you know, he had years to invite you into that conversation. I mean, I don't, this isn't to judge him, but it's just, it's us as humans. You know, he had all those years raising you to invite you into a conversation about Rastafari that it turns out he deeply wanted. Yeah. Um, and wasn't inviting you into. Yeah, it's an interesting one. And by the end of the book, I was like, I wonder how this all would have gone if I had felt invited into the conversation from the beginning, you know? Yeah. Because the sort of wisdom and history of Rastafari, as I said before, is passed down from brethren to brethren. You know, women aren't necessarily invited into the circles of their uh, their spiritual talks that they call reasoning, where Rasta brethren meet and talk about things, talk about the world and their sort of philosophical desires. And um, women aren't, weren't, aren't invited into those reasonings. And I did wonder if I had felt welcome and invited the whole time, how would this have gone? Yeah. I don't know, you know? Um, yeah. Mm. <laughs> what is your relationship to Rastafari now? Or how do you, how do you think about Rastafari now? Um, you know, I, I think about it as something that was uh, completely defined a large part of my life, how I grew up, and shaped me into the person I am now, for better or for worse. Um, I do think about the, the things that I take away from Rastafari that are good, that are positive, which is uh, rooted in this anti-colonial thought and this um, idea of, you know, celebrating my blackness and black liberation as the vision that we have for the future. And so I take that away. You know, when I, when I came to the U.S. for the first time and I was in Charlottesville, Virginia, and having to sort of reckon with that history of racism in the U.S., um, I never, f I always walked tall mm. as a black woman because of Rastafari. Mm. Let's say that. Wow. You had the, you had the tools to reach for, um, to protect your blackness, if not necessarily your womanhood. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. What about your relationship to your father? How, what's, what's that like now? You know, it's an interesting one. Um, I think that he, over the years, has definitely softened. He's definitely began to make amends. And I think he's proud of me, you know? Yeah. I know that because he said that. And um, I think he's happy that I am writing about Rastafari and this thing that um, is so deeply crucial and important to him and his life. And, um, yeah, I think in the writing of the book, it has begun to be this this kind of conduit for, for healing. What about for you, though? Uh, how do you feel about him? Oh, how do I feel about him? <laughs> um, I feel, you know... Kai, that that question can change day to day. 
<laughs> Rightly and truly. Today, today I feel good uh, uh, about him. Uh, I was home a month ago and we sat down and we had a very nice conversation. And he apologized to me for the first time mm-hmm. about a lot of the things that had happened or the way that he um, chose to sort of manifest the rules in the house. And so... I think we're on a good path. That was a good step. We're on a good path, um, you know, to mm. some kind of, of change. And lastly, your relationship to Jamaica. Um, you, you, said, yes. you said both that Jamaica is home yeah. and that you felt like you had to leave to survive. Um, I had to leave my home, my, my house, my family's house. Um, but Jamaica for me is always home, you know, I, I dream about the sea every night, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know? Um, so yes, it's always calling me back. Um, and I go back, I'm, I'm there very often, you know, so Jamaica will always be home for me. I saw somewhere that you described your poetry and your writing as tra- you wanted to evoke the lushness yes uh of jamaica yeah uh, which I, I i i hear it <laughs> <laughs> yeah so you know in in the crafting of everything i kind of i take um direction from yeah home and its landscape as how i want to weave the sentences across the page and how I want the reader to experience Jamaica. I want you to feel as skin close to Jamaica as I do, that you could kind of feel the humid kiss of my homeland when you read my work. I love that language. (laughs) so great. Sophia Sinclair's memoir is called How to Say Babylon. Thank you so much for this conversation, Sophia. Thank you so much for having me. Notes from America is a production of WNYC Studios. Follow us wherever you get your podcast and on Instagram at Notes with Kai. You can always talk to us. Go to our website at notesfromamerica.org and look for the little green record button. Just click and leave a message for us right there. I'd really love to hear what came up for you while listening to Sophia's story. So give me a shout. Rahima Nasa produced this episode. Mixing and theme music by Jared Paul. Our team also includes Karen Frillman, Regina Deheer, Suzanne Gabber, and Lindsay Foster-Thomas. Andre Robert Lee is our executive producer, and I am Kai Wright. Happy holidays. <laughs>